From the heart of our nation's capital, here's Family Research Council President Tony Perkins. Good afternoon. Welcome to Washington Watch, your source for news and analysis on public policy, politics, and culture from a biblical perspective. I'm your host, Tony Perkins, and Washington Watch starts now. We have a lot to unpack, starting with the latest on Capitol Hill. Early this morning, the U.S. Senate approved a $95 billion supplemental spending bill by a vote of 70 to 29. Today we witnessed one of the most historic and consequential bills passed the Senate, a bill that so greatly impacts not just our national security, not just the security of our allies, but also the security of Western democracy as we know it. That, of course, was the Senate scare leader Chuck Schumer. The bill, in fact, does nothing for America's national security. The $95 billion is primarily aimed at providing military aid to Ukraine. Absent from the bill are provisions for securing the U.S.'s southern border. Well, so what will the House do with this bill when it goes to the other chamber? The House is also poised for round two in the effort to impeach the Secretary of Homeland Security, Alejandro Mayorkas. Do the Republicans have the votes? We're going to talk about this and more with Oklahoma Congressman Josh Burkeen, a House Homeland Security committee member in just a moment. And several hundred illegal aliens on the terrorist watch list crossing the open southern border have government officials like FBI Director Christopher Wray suggesting we are facing our greatest threat as America, as Americans since 9-11. Now, here's a question. Given that we are ignoring our own security and shipping billions of dollars overseas, can we afford another 9-11? Is the failure to secure the border ignoring that reality? We're going to discuss that later here on Washington Watch. And turning to another topic, making headlines, NCAA official William Bach III has submitted his letter of resignation to NCAA President Charlie Baker, citing the college sports organization's policy allowing transgender men to compete in women's sports. Now, Will this high-profile resignation prompt some soul-searching over at the NCAA? We're going to talk to Doreen Denny, Senior Director of Government Relations for Concerned Women for America. And I don't know if you've been tracking this, but it's fascinating to watch the media and even law enforcement in Houston dance around politically potent issues surrounding the gunman or gunwoman at Lakewood Church, issues like she was born in El Salvador, but was she here legally? Now, speaking of her, even that is something the police struggle with. There are some discrepancies. We do have reports. She used multiple aliases, including Jeffrey Escalante. So she has utilized both male and female names. But through all of our investigation to this point, talking with individuals, interviews, documents, Houston Police Department reports, she has been occupied identified this entire time as female, she, her, and so uh, we are identifying her as Genesee Moreno, Hispanic female. You know, it's amazing. When I was a police officer, you had a a male or female. You didn't have to spend 60 seconds uh, saying, well, she identifies as a she. That, that, by the way, was the commander, Chris Hesick. He is the commander of the Houston Police Department's Homicide Division. Well, she's transgender. All right, here is a neighbor of Moreno uh, who talked about her strange and aggressive behavior. 
And at first it was, oh, it's because I'm transgender. Then it was because we're Mexican. And then it was because we were black. And every time, just depending on what her narrative was for that day, she changed the reason you were picking on her. So her neighbors knew that she identified as transgender. Now here, ignoring this connection, now we don't know all the facts here, and it's going to come out maybe if authorities don't sit on it because of their fear of the left. But if we're ignoring this connection between transgender treatments and a rise in aggressive, violent behavior, just ignoring it is not going to make it go away. Just like ignoring the border, the open border has not made the invasion go away. Now, we're going to actually explore here this rise of female aggressive behavior that is driven by transgender drug treatments. This poses a threat, a very serious threat and danger to communities all across the nation. FRC's Dr. Jennifer Bowens, director of our Center for Family Studies here at the Family Research Council, will join me for that conversation here in studio. All right, from the halls of power to the front lines of cultural battles, Washington Watch is your platform for informed discussion and meaningful dialogue, all from a biblical perspective. It's so you can stand up, speak up, and stay engaged. So let's navigate today's pressing issues together. All right, as I mentioned, the U.S. Senate voted shortly before dawn this morning to pass a $95 billion supplemental spending bill that includes $60 billion for Ukraine, along with aid to Israel and what the Senate bill describes as humanitarian causes, including to Gaza. The bill, which includes no, no provisions for slowing the invasion at our own southern border, passed by a vote of 70 to 29, is 22, count it, count them, 22 Republican senators joined with the Democrats to pass this spending package. President Biden suggested, uh, requested from Congress last October, this is what he wanted, House Speaker Mike Johnson has indicated he will not bring this specific bill to the floor due to the Senate's failure to include our own security priorities. Joining me now to discuss this and more is Congressman Josh Burkeen. He serves on the House Homeland Security Committee and the House Budget Committee. He represents the 2nd Congressional District of Oklahoma. Congressman Burkeen, welcome back to Washington Watch. Great to see you. Thank you, Tony. Good to be with you. So, Josh, let's start with this. The the bill passed in the Senate. Um, 22 Republicans joined on this. Uh, no, no uh, provision made for our own security as a nation. How is this going to fare in the House? Well, I uh, am one of many, I'm sure, that's lauding our, our speaker. I actually sent him a text uh, yesterday. He spent his policy director also a text, and it said, thank you. Um, you know, $100 billion, Tony, that's no small number. That's one-tenth of a trillion. And if you take that six, same $60 billion and you were to apply it to physical barriers at our southern border, you could complete, um, by my staff and I's quick calculation, 1,200-mile border wall. We've already got 700-mile border wall or structures along a 2,000-mile area. And so you could almost have a completion, a longstanding completion of a, of a physical barrier uh, with that $60 billion that they're advocating to put towards Ukraine. So I'm grateful to Speaker Johnson to say, uh, look, this is not the priority. Yeah, I, I talked to the Speaker over the weekend, and he said, absolutely not. We're not going to move this bill. But you've got Republicans in the Senate, like Tom Tillis of North Carolina, are actually encouraging a discharge petition, which means you would have to have Democrats 
to yeah. to join with you know a handful of Republicans. If they get, uh, I guess it's 218, if they get that, they can force a vote on this on the floor. What are you hearing about that? Well, I hope to uh, get into those conversations more. And, and, you know, in the past, that type of activity is always seen as undermining your speaker and his ability to negotiate and, and get the best deal, not just on one particular matter, but, you know, for the, the, the length of their tenure. And so if they undermine the speaker, it, it, uh, it really tells you something. And uh, so I hope that the speaker, I hope that those conversations um, go fast and furious to uh, put a cabal on, on that type of activity. And the discharge petitions are, are actually rare. The last one to pass, uh, I think, was back in 2015. Uh, so this doesn't happen often. But we've seen a lot in this Congress that doesn't happen often. And, and this with a very razor thin a majority. Of course, we have uh, the majority leader back now. Steve Scalise is back. So I think we've got now, what, a two-vote margin? Yeah. And so, you know, that. with that said, I mean, the Mayorkas vote as of last week shows how thin it is. And, and tonight we're supposed to move forward on that. And uh, every vote matters right now. Let, so, yes. Let, let's talk about that, Josh. Let's talk about where, where do we, uh, last week we fell short on the impeachment vote of Alejandro Mayorkas. What is your expectation for tonight's vote? Well, I saw a member from New York. New York had inclement weather uh, today, and so I saw one member just a minute ago, and they said that it looked like people from New York were able to get here. So with all the numbers, um, my expectation is that it will, it will pass. And, Tony, people that say, why do you do this if you know the two-thirds vote, which the Constitution sets up, impeachment on the House side, conviction on the Senate side, requiring two-thirds? If we have every expectation the Senate's not going to do anything with it, why move it? It's because if you have the opportunity to address lawlessness and you choose not to because you say, well, they're not going to move on it, you're still accountable for your own actions. The House has to be accountable for its itself. And the Senate has to be accountable for itself. Right. And the House, if we tolerate this, we empower it, the lawlessness that is on our southern border. And for any bureaucrat to say the will of Congress or the will of the people doesn't matter. Yeah. Excellent point, Josh. And I would, I would, I would give this analogy as a former police officer. You know, if I saw an act that violated the law, um, you know, I, it was up to me to to deal with that as a law enforcement officer, regardless of what the DA might do with it, the prosecutor might, re- maybe they don't like to prosecute certain kinds of crime, uh, like like littering, which is one that I was always big on because I hate to see people trashing uh, the environment. Uh, but that didn't matter. I didn't I didn't write a ticket or make an arrest based upon what the prosecutor may do. Uh, I did it based upon what the law said. And that's what I see the House doing in this case. Tony, can you imagine what a different world we live in today if 30 and 40 years ago when people were issuing executive orders, if Congress said, no, Article 1, Section 1 says all legislative powers be vested in the Congress. You have no right. And impeachment would, would happen quickly on justices who operated in bad behavior, who didn't you know, just organically go back to the, the original text. If the Congress said, you're out for bad behavior, as the Constitution tells us. What a different world we'd be in today instead of, on average, under Republican and Democrats, 300 executive orders. Um, under Washington, you had eight executive orders. Under Madison, you had one executive order. Under Jefferson, you had one. And yet now you, you, you progress all the way to Theodore Roosevelt. He issued 1,000 executive orders. Uh, Franklin Delano Roosevelt issued 3,000. 
And we find ourselves where we're at today where these emergency orders by presidents are tolerated. Yeah. Lawlessness compounds lawlessness. That, that scripture in Ecclesiastes, it says, when the sentence for a crime is not quickly carried out, the heart of the people is enticed to do more evil. Yeah. And that's where we're at in this country. It, it, when we don't punish lawlessness, it just compounds. Well, I I know that there are many saying, well, why, don't, why doesn't the Congress do this? Why doesn't the Congress do that? They're not doing this, this is important. It is the it is the one lever we have to hold this administration accountable. Now, you know what the Senate does with it. That's up to them. Uh, but as for the Republican led House, they are taking on the lawlessness of this administration. And for that, uh, Josh, I have to commend the Republicans for continuing to stay with this and pursue it. Yeah. Look, it has to happen. Lawlessness is not something to laugh at. The rule of law matters. We're losing it, Tony. That our debt, our deficit, all the things that most of us, you know, really spend a lot of our time on our border. It, lawlessness is really at the root of all of this. Yeah. And when someone crosses a line, if you don't call it timeout, say you're out of bounds, foul. Uh, if the umpires don't call stro- uh, uh, strikes and balls, then this stuff continues. Well, we're going to be watching tonight's vote very, very closely. Josh Burkeen, thanks so much for joining us. Always great to see you. Thanks, sir. God bless you. Appreciate you. All right. Congressman Josh Burkeen of uh, Oklahoma. All right. Coming up next, um, the border. Law enforcement officials are sounding the alarm that America could face another 9-11. But what's Congress doing about it? Are they actually securing that border? What's the president doing about it? nothing. Can we afford another attack? We're going to talk about the cost involved after this. Christians must be sure to faithfully think about the issues that have taken our culture and many of our churches by storm from a biblical perspective. Family Research Council's David Clawson, along with co-authors Denny Burke and Colin Smothers, released a new book, Male and Female, He Created Them, a study on gender, sexuality, and marriage to help Christians better grasp the Bible's teaching about these issues. This study presents a biblical view of homosexuality, transgenderism, and marriage. With this new resource, readers will be given guidance on specific questions related to preferred pronouns, identity, intersex conditions, and other matters that our churches must be discipling their members to respond to with love and biblical conviction. As part of the study, readers have access to supplemental videos by Dr. Albert Moeller, Dr. Heath Lambert, Reverend H.B. Charles, Dr. Christopher Yuan, Dr. Rosaria Butterfield, and others that expand and elaborate the themes of each chapter. To purchase a copy, go to hecreatedthem.org. Today we find that global persecutions of Christians is growing more menacing every year. Family Research Council's Leela Gilbert, Ariel Del Turco, and Lieutenant General Jerry Boykin's book, Heroic Faith, shares personal stories from those who have endured religious persecution and gives a close look at the dire situations Christians often face due to dangerous and sometimes deadly opposition to their faith. The book's true stories of persistence and faithfulness amidst crisis offer inspiration and hope. Heroic Faith also provides insights into the ideologies driving the hostility and persecution, what steps the U.S. government might take to help, and how readers can best respond to the struggles of the faithful. It is critical for us to learn from our brothers and sisters who are suffering deeply and to do whatever we can to help. You can get your copy of Heroic Faith wherever books are sold or by going to frc.org slash heroic faith. Again, that's frc.org slash heroic faith. 
Men are constantly told that there is no place for their thoughts and concerns about abortion. However, this attitude ignores the fact that both women and men are deeply and personally affected by abortion. Furthermore, one does not have to be a woman to know that abortion ends the life of an innocent, unborn child. Every man has a role to play in protecting unborn lives and supporting the mothers in their families and greater community, which is why FRC's Center for Human Dignity has released a resource titled A Man's Guide to Standing for Life. This resource was created to help men positively address the topic of life. This guide will equip men with phrases to utilize or avoid, as well as practical tips for helping to protect life and the expectant mother or unborn child he knows. Every man has the opportunity to be an unborn baby's hero by stepping in to support a mother and speaking up for her child's life. Get this free guide at frc.org slash men to learn more about the important role men play in protecting unborn lives. Welcome back to this Tuesday edition of Washington Watch. Good to have you with us. And by the way, uh, thousands of you have already signed our petition that we're going to be delivering to the House leadership to hold fast, to hold steady on the border issue and not cave in to uh, the Biden administration or to the Senate's weak, their weak sisters over there that uh, caved. So if you have not yet signed it and would like to, you've got a, another day or so to sign on. Text the word BORDER to 67742. That's BORDER to 67742. All right, according to congressional testimony, just under 300 illegal aliens on the terrorist watch list were detained crossing the southern border between 2021 and 2023. Now, those are just the ones who were caught. Now, in December of last year, FBI Director Christopher Wray suggested the threat of terrorism against the U.S. was the greatest since 9-11. Now, since the Senate and the president are ignoring this threat as they send billions of dollars overseas, I thought it would be, well, it'd be helpful to bring up a few uncomfortable facts. Join me now to discuss this is E.J. Antoni, research fellow at the Heritage Foundation. E.J., welcome back to Washington Watch. Tony, thank you for having me again. I, I want to. I appreciate you coming by to talk about this. I want to talk about the economic impact of 9/11. Now, the economic direct economic impact was significant, around 100 billion dollars or more. But that doesn't even begin to tell the story of what the U.S. has spent in the last 20 years in the subsequent global war on terror that was precipitated by just 19 terrorists. I mean. What are we looking at here? What are we missing in terms of the scope and the size of the economic effect that ignoring the threat of terrorism has had on this country? Tony, it's a great question. And I think not only do we have to remember that we for a very long time ignored the threat of terrorism, but then once that threat uh, was actually manifested, then we decided to deal with it mainly in the wrong way. So instead of actually uh, going after, for example, the terrorist leaders and just ensuring that they were dead and the message was sent, we decided to go on on these these crazy schemes of nation building. And we got thousands upon thousands of our own soldiers killed, as well as countless other civilians. And we spent trillions of dollars doing all of that. And, And for what end? I mean, we essentially took how many years and how many trillions of dollars to ensure that the Taliban in Afghanistan were replaced with, you guessed it, the Taliban. 
I mean, we should have learned the lesson from from the Russians during the Cold War. Right. And, and we have tried to do this repeatedly in, in many places around the world. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I was looking at this study uh, from the Watson, Watson Institute at Brown University, and, and they, they went back and looked at the, the 20 years of the U.S. being at war, and, and the price tag they put on it based upon, uh, these are just the warfare cost and cost of uh, caring for our veterans. You ready for this? $8 trillion, 19 terrorists precipitated a cost of $8 trillion that America has paid. And we have this wide open border that we're refusing to deal with now. And we know that there are terrorist cells operating in this country. Given the, the, the rise in our debt, $34 trillion in rising, how could we ever face such a situation again and deal with it in a fiscally responsible manner? Oh, you simply can't. You know, and Tony, this, this is such a great point you're bringing up here. One of the things that happened after 9-11 was that the Fed reduced interest rates to artificially low levels. And they, they did that to spur the economy. But then with all of the war spending, they had to continue keeping rates way too low for way too long in order to finance all of those federal deficits. So exactly the same thing that, that we saw the last three years that gave us 40-year high inflation, uh, a cost of living crisis, a banking crisis, et cetera, was all done in the early 2000s. And that's what helped create the global financial crisis and the mortgage meltdown. So I think we really should add in all of those economic costs as well when we talk about the, the fallout from 9-11. Right. But in terms of how could we possibly respond today, we, we simply couldn't. I mean, look at, look at, for example, how large the debt has gotten and probably more importantly, the cost of servicing that debt. It's over a trillion dollars a year. You know, it's over 40 percent of personal income taxes that it takes just to pay the interest on the debt. I'm not talking pay the debt down. I'm talking literally just pay the interest right. on the debt. We are quick approaching a point in this country where the government is going to have few things it can afford besides the interest. Yeah, excellent point, because in this $8 trillion number is about a trillion dollars in interest that we've paid to finance this war on terror, again, precipitated by 19 terrorists. But, E.J., you bring up a really good point, is the way we dealt with it was the wrong way, because in times past, we actually either raised taxes, not a good idea, or we sold war bonds. We didn't—we we generally did not fund these protracted wars with deficit spending. Well, you know, that was one of the reasons why with the Vietnam War, for example, uh, that Nixon had to end the gold standard because everyone realized that the United States does not have anywhere near enough gold to actually uh, to actually convert all of these dollars that are floating around. So un unfortunately, you know, this is not entirely new, but that doesn't mean it's good either. We are absolutely headed down the wrong road here. You know, and, and you make a great point with, with the border. We are spending how many billions upon billions of dollars on other countries? We don't even have enough money to pay our own bills, let alone uh, give away money. We don't even have enough money to, to loan these countries anything, let alone give it away. So instead, what are we doing? Well, what should we be doing? We should be securing our own border so that we don't have another 19 of these terrorists come through and, and kill how many countless Americans and, and cost us how many countless dollars in the process. Yeah, as you point out, just the servicing of our debt is soon going to be our largest line item 
and unsustainable. I mean, we're, we're very near to that point, are we not? Oh, certainly, 100%. And, and I was actually very glad to, to see the latest CBO report. For a while, I was saying that, look, guys, by 2025, we are going to be paying uh, more to service the debt as a percentage of our economy than we have ever before. And, you know, a lot of people said that that was nonsense, that was fear-mongering, whatever the case may be. Well, CBO literally just a few days ago came out with their own report that projects the exact same thing. So it, it's amazing how many different voices now are getting on yeah. board with the fact that this is truly, as you as you said, unsustainable, right. Tony. We're at a tipping point. Uh, EJ, uh, thanks so much for uh, joining us. It's always great to, uh, to talk with you. Thank you for having me. Absolutely. EJ Antoni at the Heritage Foundation. All right, folks, coming up next, the NCAA. A board member resigns over their trans policies. We talk about it next. Christians must be sure to faithfully think about the issues that have taken our culture and many of our churches by storm from a biblical perspective. Family Research Council's David Clawson, along with co-authors Denny Burke and Colin Smothers, released a new book, Male and Female, He Created Them, a study on gender, sexuality, and marriage to help Christians better grasp the Bible's teaching about these issues. This study presents a biblical view of homosexuality, transgenderism, and marriage. With this new resource, readers will be given guidance on specific questions related to preferred pronouns, identity, intersex conditions, and other matters that our churches must be discipling their members to respond to with love and biblical conviction. As part of the study, readers have access to supplemental videos by Dr. Albert Moeller, Dr. Heath Lambert, Reverend H.B. Charles, Dr. Christopher Yuan, Dr. Rosaria Butterfield, and others that expand and elaborate the themes of each chapter. To purchase a copy, go to hecreatedthem.org. Today we find that global persecutions of Christians is growing more menacing every year. Family Research Council's Leela Gilbert, Ariel Del Turco, and Lieutenant General Jerry Boykin's book, Heroic Faith, shares personal stories from those who have endured religious persecution and gives a close look at the dire situations Christians often face due to dangerous and sometimes deadly opposition to their faith. The book's true stories of persistence and faithfulness amidst crisis offer inspiration and hope. Heroic Faith also provides insights into the ideologies driving the hostility and persecution, what steps the U.S. government might take to help, and how readers can best respond to the struggles of the faithful. It is critical for us to learn from our brothers and sisters who are suffering deeply and to do whatever we can to help. You can get your copy of Heroic Faith wherever books are sold or by going to frc.org slash heroicfaith. Again, that's frc.org slash heroicfaith. All right, welcome back. Again, the border petition. Text the word border to 67742 and add your name to that growing list of Americans who are saying secure our border before you do anything else. I mean, the, the, the risk is so great. Again, text border to 67742. All right, as a trans activists continue their effort to take over women's sports and spaces and frankly, more dangerously, the minds and bodies of America's children. We're seeing a backlash and an increasingly percentage of the public finding the courage to push back, thankfully. 
Last week, William Bach III, a member of the NCAA Committee on Infractions, resigned from his position citing the organization's policy of allowing men to compete in women's sports as the primary reason for his departure. Now, in his resignation letter, Bach said, quote, I have watched the NCAA double down on its regressive policies, which discriminate against female student athletes. Now, here's the question. Will there be any soul searching over at the NCAA? And might we see more officials stand up for women and for truth? Joining me now to discuss is Doreen Denny, Senior Director of Government Relations for Concerned Women for America. Doreen, welcome to Washington Watch. Thank you, Tony. It's wonderful to be here today. Thank you. So let's start with the obvious. The NCAA's mm-hmm. policy allowing male athletes in women's sports has had no justification in law and science. There's a lot of pushback, but that doesn't seem to deter them. Well, I think you're right. I think that we've seen the trend toward activism, and we see it in so many different contexts, that really has shut down any reason or common sense. And unfortunately, the NCAA is a coward. You know, it's a coward to institutions that are woke. It's a coward to the culture that wants to uh, try to convince us that males can take women's places because they're now female. Um, And we know that's just a farce. And, And so... What Bill Bach has done um, is has really sent a strong message to the NCAA. Uh, and, you know, his reasons come from his own expertise. Um, he was a part of the uh, U.S. doping agency that, that litigated uh, Lance Armstrong and the testosterone doping scandal that, that happened. And he said even, you know, Lance Armstrong's doping scandal, does it pales into comparison about the advantage that males have in women's sports. And so we need the kind of common sense uh, expertise. We need people to take a stand and be courageous to stand up. And we just have to keep working. 24 states now, actually 25, with with Alaska doing it administratively, has stood up to say women's sports are for women only. Most of those include college. The entire Southern, uh, Southern Educational Conference, the SEC, states with colleges, now with the exception of Georgia, and we hope that they actually pass a law now have protect college female athletes. You would think that all of these things are sending a message to the NCAA that they need to back off their regressive policies, uh, but it's just going to take more effort and more people to stand up. So the NCAA has a relatively new president, Charlie Baker, former Republican governor of Massachusetts. Is there... Any chance that he's going to back away from this? I mean, as he sees, as you try, the the trend is not toward this. The trend is away from this. When you go to the actual level of the states and the locals where where girls are participating in sports. So, I mean, is is he seeing the trends? Well, I hope he's seeing the trends. I hope he's reading the news. And I hope he sees what's happening right in the backyard of the NCAA right now, where we have two athletes in, in season at least, in Division Three, that are breaking records, being uh, heralded as Women Performer of the Week. These are males that have previously um, competed as males, just like Leah Thomas, and now they're they're um, now in the female category. 
and so, you know, Concerned Women for America, when he was appointed, uh, said, we hope that this would be a reset, that Charlie Baker would come in, recognize what was happening, the trend even then, because we just seen what happened when uh, Leah Thomas won a national championship, that he would have be open-minded and actually more than open-minded, that he would look back and, and start a process to reevaluate. That hasn't happened. He's been testified, he's testified in front of two congressional committees, one in the Senate, one in the House, where he's basically doubled down on the policy trying to pass the buck in some cases, saying that national governing bodies and the Olympics are doing this. Well, we've seen internationally that governing bodies are going the opposite direction. Right. I would like to be able to give Charlie Baker uh, some, some space and some opening to actually look at the facts and have these messages that we're seeing uh, from Bill Bach, who's talking about integrity in sports uh, and from others, um, and, and to have him have the courage to actually start a process to uh, not only reevaluate it, but to recognize that the NCAA really has no place to be dictating to states and schools what the policy around this should be. This has become institutional discrimination against women. It's, it's nothing less than that. And for women to be disadvantaged in this way as an entire class for the disparate impact that happens, these are actually violations of Title IX. And uh, we know the Biden administration would like to march forward in, in confusing what the meaning of sex is. We think we'll win in the courts. We wouldn't. We really don't want to have to go through that laborious process, but if we have to, that might be the only way we get to the, to the right end. Well, the trends are looking encouraging as more people stand up and speak out. Doreen, thanks so much for uh, joining us today. Thank you so much, Tony. God bless. All right. Um, you know, I, I say this a lot. Courage breeds courage. And I, I, it, we wouldn't be here actually having this conversation that these, seeing this movement if it were not for some of the female athletes that have stood up and spoken out. And so I would encourage the women to continue to stand, for, stand up and speak out. Their voices cannot be denied. All right, after the break, as details emerge regarding the shooter at the Lakewood Church, we continue to monitor the fallout of these attacks on churches and the hostility there. That's next here on Washington Watch. Christians must be sure to faithfully think about the issues that have taken our culture and many of our churches by storm from a biblical perspective. Family Research Council's David Clawson, along with co-authors Denny Burke and Colin Smothers, released a new book, Male and Female, He Created Them, a study on gender, sexuality, and marriage to help Christians better grasp the Bible's teaching about these issues. This study presents a biblical view of homosexuality, transgenderism, and marriage. With this new resource, readers will be given guidance on specific questions related to preferred pronouns, identity, intersex conditions, and other matters that our churches must be discipling their members to respond to with love and biblical conviction. As part of the study, readers have access to supplemental videos by Dr. Albert Moeller, Dr. Heath Lambert, Reverend H.B. Charles, Dr. Christopher Yuan, Dr. Rosaria Butterfield, and others that expand and elaborate the themes of each chapter. To purchase a copy, go to hecreatedthem.org. Today we find that global persecutions of Christians is growing more menacing every year. Family Research Council's Leela Gilbert, Ariel Del Turco, and Lieutenant General Jerry Boykin's book, Heroic Faith, shares personal stories from those who have endured religious persecution and gives a close look at the dire situations Christians often face due to dangerous and sometimes deadly opposition to their faith. 
The book's true stories of persistence and faithfulness amidst crisis offer inspiration and hope. Heroic Faith also provides insights into the ideologies driving the hostility and persecution, what steps the U.S. government might take to help, and how readers can best respond to the struggles of the faithful. It is critical for us to learn from our brothers and sisters who are suffering deeply and to do whatever we can to help. You can get your copy of Heroic Faith wherever books are sold or by going to frc.org slash heroic faith. Again, that's frc.org slash heroic faith. Men are constantly told that there is no place for their thoughts and concerns about abortion. However, this attitude ignores the fact that both women and men are deeply and personally affected by abortion. Furthermore, one does not have to be a woman to know that abortion ends the life of an innocent, unborn child. Every man has a role to play in protecting unborn lives and supporting the mothers in their families and greater community, which is why FRC's Center for Human Dignity has released a resource titled A Man's Guide to Standing for Life. This resource was created to help men positively address the topic of life. This guide will equip men with phrases to utilize or avoid, as well as practical tips for helping to protect life and the expectant mother or unborn child he knows. Every man has the opportunity to be an unborn baby's hero by stepping in to support a mother and speaking up for her child's life. Get this free guide at frc.org slash men to learn more about the important role men play in protecting unborn lives. All right, thanks for joining us on this Tuesday. The website's onlyperkins.com. Be sure and check it out. Lots of resources there for you. Our word for today comes from Exodus chapter 17. So Joshua did as Moses said to him and fought with Amalek. And Moses and Aaron and Hur went up to the top of the hill. And so it was when Moses held up his hand that Israel prevailed. And when he let down his hand, Amalek prevailed. But Moses' hands became very heavy. So they took a stone and put it under him. And he sat on it, and Aaron and Hur supported his hands, one on one side and the other on the other side, and his hands were steady until the going down of the sun. Wow. Joshua prevailed on the battlefield as a result of Moses' intercession with heaven. What a tremendous revelation from, for those of us in the kingdom of God today. We do not battle against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers. If intercession with God won physical battles in the Old Testament... Where should we be putting our emphasis today? Prayer. I invite you to join us on our journey through the Bible. Go to frc.org slash Bible. Well, investigators in Houston, Texas, continue their efforts to determine the motive of the shooter behind Sunday's church attack that injured two people, including the suspect's seven-year-old son. And it ended with the death of the shooter by law enforcement officers. Now, Houston police have documented a history of mental health issues and a lengthy criminal history for the suspect that they've identified as a woman named Genesis Moreno. Uh, Now, she was from El Salvador. There has been no discussion of whether or not she was in the U.S. legally. She used a rifle uh, that she reportedly purchased legally. How she did that with a record of mental illness is a big question mark. The rifle had Palestine, a sticker on the butt of the uh, stock, And Houston police uncovered her anti-Semitic writings uh, as well. Now, reports also indicate she used multiple aliases, including the male name Jeffrey. While there are many details we do not know, we do know that both mental health crises and attacks on churches continue to rise. 
And there is a convergence of transgenderism, drug treatments, and violence. I'm joined now by Dr. Jennifer Bowens, director of the Center for Family Studies here at the Family Research Council. Prior to her work at FRC, Dr. Bowens worked as a clinician and researcher addressing the effects of psychological trauma. As a researcher, she studied the effects of mass traumatic events like 9-11. Dr. Bowens, welcome back to Washington Watch. Thanks for having me, Tony. All right. So there's a lot of unknowns here. Right. Right. So, but we're we're having a difficult time getting the information because the, the, there appears to be some reluctance on behalf of authorities to give out information. Mm-hmm. Uh, so we're piecing this together based upon what we're hearing. So we're, we're kind of talking in generalities here, but prompting, hopefully, prompting officials to dig a little deeper because there could be some very important underlying facts here that could have implications for the safety of a lot of people. Yeah, I mean, you have to remember, this is on the heels of us passing um, community school bills and all kinds of bills about school shootings and so forth. And um, and we did that with, you know, trying to throw all these different ideas and, and legislation at a problem that actually has a really deeper root. And it's time that we really look at that root um, and we're not doing that, right. Tony. We're not. We're not addressing the root issues here. Now, mental illness yes. is an issue. Absolutely, this is a mental illness issue, with with shootings across the board. Right. So historically, we would see men who um, are school shooting or school shooters. Well, or, but, or mass shootings. Period. Has right. up until recently was almost exclusively men. Right. But something's changed. Something's changed, and it's been in conjunction with the rise of transgenderism. Um, and, of course, we know with this population, they already have a lot of, of mental health issues, right? They have a lot of adverse childhood events. Um, trauma. Trauma. Right. They have trauma. So, And we also know that they're at risk for suicide. Right. So with trauma also sometimes comes anger? Absolutely. comes anger and also comes a susceptibility to suicidal ideation or committing suicide, which you just take that a step further. I mean, if you're able, if it's not saying that everyone who has a suicidal ideation is going to commit uh, right. mass murder, but you're committing murder. You're committing murder right. of yourself. So you're already in a position that's not, it's not good. That, that's you're, what we... Again, we have not gotten all the information from the shooting at Covenant School in Nashville. But what has leaked out uh, suggests that transgender female, that female who, you know, acted as a male, that she was wanting to commit suicide. Right. And and so this is an alarming trend that we're seeing these young women who don't fit the profile, that we're seeing them commit these heinous acts. And a good researcher would say, what is going on here? Right. And why is it that there, these women are also connected in some way to the transgender ideology? So, so, so let me unpack that for just a little bit, because I think it's important when we, we talk about transgender. We're not talking about, um, in some cases, just identifying as a male but they're, one of the things we've been working on in these SAFE acts in states across the country 
is this experimental use of drugs and surgery. So if you're a female and you are wanting to identify as a male, you take male hormones. Right. And if you have an underlying mental illness, what what does this is like a a concoction that is just so volatile and dangerous. Yes, and this is this is one of the root issues that we need to look at because um, the hormones aren't taking care of what already is a pre-existing mental health issue. So if you take someone who has great mental health and then you pump them with higher levels of male or female hormones, I mean, how can you expect a good outcome? I mean, that's not rocket not science. It's not normal. And so not only let's just take a, a woman and you pump her full of testosterone. Um, first of all, now she's she's having to socially adjust to the fact that her body is changing to look more like a male. So that's introducing all kinds of other mental health issues, the possibility of greater levels of bullying, etc. But then you have all these new emotions to deal with rage. Um, you know, a sexual drive that wasn't there before. Now, all of a sudden, you're that woman is having to deal with these emotions, and you have a mental health community that's surrounding her, saying, "You know, this is this is great. This is the answer to all your problems." Well, reports again, not from the police, but reports from neighbors who have described mm-hmm. the behavior of this woman. It was very aggressive. Um, you know, she had weapons. She threatened people with those weapons. Uh, she tried to run over people with their car. I mean, with her car. I mean, she was very aggressive. Yeah, and you have to wonder: was there more going on than just her baseline mental health distress? And so, if you're yeah. looking at public policy, isn't this information you need to know when we're looking at this transgender craze, and that there are societal implications for what we are doing, especially when it starts with children in schools? Yeah. Absolutely. And and I think we also have to recognize that we as a American society and as a psychological profession are so quick to throw drugs at every problem. And so I believe that part of what gave rise to using hormones to deal with gender distress or whatever, you know, however you want to call it, um, is from this from the desire to fix something with a pill, to have a quick right. fix rather than to actually deal with those underlying issues, which we're clearly seeing a baseline with so many of these um, shooting incidents. There's already mental health distress, and now now you're going to throw um, the wild uh, card of hormones into the mix of this. It's, it's a recipe for disaster. So, Dr. Balance, in... How many other situations where someone is struggling with something do we do we do we ignore the underlying mental health issues? I think we do it in unfortunately in a lot of areas. I mean, I think when it comes to even psychological drugs, psychotropic drugs, those are supposed to be the last resort. Instead, I think if you go to um, some of your physicians, they'll that'll be the first thing they do is prescribe you something. And I, I know some people that listen to us might totally disagree with me, but I think the point here is that we actually start as a society, we start dealing with the real internal struggles that we're facing and not just try to medicate everything that we're, we're dealing with. And, and one other thing I would say with that is 
one thing that's given rise to all of these trans, um, I think some of the trans shootings is a backdrop that looks at um, the world through the minority stress theory, which basically says if you are a minority, then you are an oppressed person. And so when you have people like what we've been reporting on, on all these different um, shootings, they're already struggling. And so you have a, a society or schools and psychologists who are saying, you know, you're this way because you're a minority and you're, um, you're a gender minority, then that just latches on to the person who already feels victimized. They're, they're already feeling a victim because maybe they've been through trauma. Right. So then you have this framework that says, you know, you are a victim and, and there are these other people, Christians, others who believe that sex is binary and therefore um, they are keeping this vital treatment from you. So you can see just how some of this, the circumstances in our society have set up the belief system that Christians are the problem. And, and we're, we're going to actually be looking at it later this week uh, with our hostility toward the, the churches, that uh, report that's going to be coming out that shows uh, it's, it's more than doubled in terms of the attacks on, on churches. So I want to go back to your point about how uh, we medicate. Yeah. Uh, so we basically suppress, kick the can down the road, do not deal with the underlying issue. Mm-hmm. At some point, though, at some point that manifests. Yeah. It, how could it not? Right. You can't numb yourself out to the point where things will things will eventually manifest. It will come out in a different relationship. It'll come out in a work setting, etc. So we we're trying to um, take the easy way out. Because we don't, as especially as Americans, we don't like pain. Um, there's a, a book called, I think it's Dopamine Nation, and it talks about how, as Americans, we've blown out our dopamine systems with all the drugs that we use every time we experience pain. And then we actually, as Americans, um, compared to other countries, we actually report higher levels of pain. Right. And so we have to learn how to with God, go through pain courageously because you can only go through pain with him if you're going to do it successfully. But you got to deal with it. you, you got to confront it. it. You have to confront these underlying issues, oftentimes, as you point out, trauma. And, and I hate to say it, just based on experience and counseling and law enforcement, a lot of children face trauma yeah. and experience that trauma. Um, and sometimes they, they don't. Their parents may not un, may not discover it, may not know about it, and then it manifests itself in a certain behavior. And the parents then deal with the symptom, but not the source. So speak to that in just a couple of minutes. We've got left about you know what parents, grandparents need to be looking for, and how they can get real help. Yeah. It- I think um, I will say this. So many of the things that we try to do in the policy space to deal with uh, homelessness and delinquency and all of these things, it's actually if we would deal with the trauma, um, a lot of these issues would go away. Um, they would resolve themselves, but but we don't do that. And and I would say that one of the most important things you can do 
um, is to face it as actually one of the treatments for trauma is actually they call it an exposure and you you are it's horrible but <laughs> because nobody wants to face what they went through but it's just one example of the fact that we can avoid people avoid it through drinking and they avoid it, uh, traumas through different means but when we actually are able to courageously face it maybe that we have help with somebody else then those symptoms typically disappear and that's um i think that's a good admonition for life is um to to face off with the things because they will continue to be in the background of our existence until we actually face it and go through it and get to the other side. But you do get to the other side. That's the good right. news. And, and I think we don't have time to unpack this, but when you, and we're going to have to have this conversation at a later date, but when you look at Scripture, you read the Bible, Old Testament, New Testament, there are folks that had a lot of issues, <laughs> but they were able to work through them. God was able, in many cases, they were, some refused to, to deal with it, but those who did, the, the Lord was able to see them through. Yeah, look at the life of David. Yeah. I mean, he messed up terribly. He caused he caused trauma to other people. He had trauma in his his life with his own son. But but look at his legacy. I mean, son of David. Yeah. You know? We're fallen man and 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 fallen people do things to other people as well. But God is able to to help us. It doesn't eradicate and remove all of that, but helps us through those things. Yeah, and the hope is that we, every day, we are becoming like him right, as he right. is, so are we in this world. Dr. Bowen's always great to see you. You too. All right. Well, folks, great to see you as well. Thanks so much for joining us today. Until next time, I leave you once again with the encouraging words of the Apostle Paul found in Ephesians 6, where he says, you've done everything you can do when you've prayed, when you've prepared, and when you've taken your stand. By all means, keep standing. Washington Watch with Tony Perkins is brought to you by Family Research Council and is entirely listener-supported. Portions of the show discussing candidates are brought to you by Family Research Council Action. For more information on anything you've heard today or to find out how you can partner with us in our ongoing efforts to promote faith, family, and freedom, visit TonyPerkins.com. Also, to leave a comment about Washington Watch, call our watch line at one 866 372-7234. That's 1-866-372-7234.